Welcome to the Peace Podcast. I'm John Deere. Thanks so much for taking time to listen to our Pache Benny Peace Podcast, and I encourage you to tell your friends and colleagues about them and ask them to listen to them. That would be wonderful to help spread the word. At the moment, we're preparing an amazing national conference on nonviolence for August 2020 in New Mexico to mark the 75th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki with Martin Sheen, Dolores Huerta, Father Richard Rohr, Dr. Erica Chenoweth, and many others. Check out our website and register at www.campaignnonviolence.org. I hope to see you there. Well, it's the season of Lent, and as we head toward Holy Week, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday, I thought we could look at a gospel text which has been really important for me for many years now. It's from Luke 10, and I write about it in my recent book, which is called Walking the Way, Following Jesus on the Lenten Journey of Gospel Nonviolence to the Cross and the Resurrection, which for me was my most important work. It's the culmination of all my life's reflections on the nonviolence of Jesus. And if you're interested, you can get it at 23rd Publications or Amazon.com. So Luke's gospel portrays the life of the nonviolent Jesus as one big, long campaign of peace and nonviolence. He's walking through the countryside, heals the victims of violence, expels the demons of imperial violence, teaches nonviolence, and announces the coming of God's reign of peace and nonviolence. His very presence is healing and disarming. So then at one point, he sends his 12 disciples on ahead of him on that same mission, to do the work he's been doing because they've been watching him. So they start expelling the demons of imperial violence and healing the victims of violence and announcing the coming of God's reign of nonviolence. And it says, they go on their way proclaiming the good news and curing diseases everywhere. And when they return, he takes them off to a quiet place where they rest up, pray, and reflect on their experience. It's really a lovely story. But what amazes me is apparently they did a really good job. And he's so encouraged that he ups the ante and broadens the campaign and sends 72 other disciples out to continue it and proclaim God's reign of peace and nonviolence. Around that time, someone approaches him and says, I'd like to become your follower. And he says, go and proclaim the reign of God. That becomes, in effect, his new definition of a follower. So As he starts his main long campaign of nonviolence from Galilee to Jerusalem, he sends the 72 ahead of him to prepare his coming until he himself reaches Jerusalem where he's going to engage in nonviolent civil disobedience and be killed. And then he rises from the dead. And then he tells his followers to go back and carry on his campaign of nonviolence. So here we are today, 2,000 years later, on the brink of global destruction, suffering an epidemic of total violence, and each one of us, I submit, is called to carry on Jesus' campaign of nonviolence. And that's what, as a little side note, the way, that's why I'm excited about our work at Pache Bene with our annual Campaign Nonviolence Week of Action, because to me, it's like we're continuing Jesus' campaign. We're trying to send people out and organize a grassroots movement of nonviolence across the country to abolish racism, war, poverty, nuclear weapons, environmental destruction, and to work for a new culture of peace and nonviolence. We do this every September for many years now during this National Week of Action around September 21st, which is International Peace Day.
and we've organized thousands and thousands of actions across the U.S. It continues to grow. And I see us as trying to carry on Jesus's campaign. So please join us and check it out at campaignnonviolence.org. But as you know, there are thousands and thousands of grassroots movements around the world now. And that's the great sign of hope right now. Many people are carrying on Jesus' campaign of nonviolence. And that's what we're all trying to do too. So for example, that's how I interpret the Parkland students working to end gun violence or the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or Black Lives Matter, or 350.org and the Sunrise Movement, and young Greta Thunberg and the Global Youth Strikes for Climate Justice. Here's what Greta says. Our house is on fire, and we need to act as if the house is on fire, because it is. I love how she just gets right to the point. Inaction, she says, just fuels the flames by the hour. You people need to act as if you loved your children above all else. It's a great quote, powerful. So it was in that spirit that over the last few months, I've marched and been arrested in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles with Jane Fonda and friends as part of the Fire Drill Fridays movement, which is calling to end fossil fuels, get a Green New Deal, and bring about climate justice. In D.C., just before Christmas, I was arrested with Jane and 140 others in Washington, D.C. for sitting in at the Hart Senate office building. A few weeks later, I attended the rally and march in Los Angeles at the City Hall with over a thousand people. And Jane gave a great speech, and she said, we only have 10 years, quoting this recent statement by thousands of scientists. And she said, we have to stop the drilling for fossil fuels and then gradually close all our wells and end all drilling. That's the key, she said. And she said, places like California have begun investing in alternative solar and wind energy, and while that's very good, that's only half the work. We have to stop the drilling for fossil fuels within 10 years or we're doomed. And she explained how very few leaders have dared to challenge the oil companies, much less prevent them from drilling, and yet that's the critical task at hand. So that's what we were demanding. Um, and I think the Fire Drill Fridays, which is a great movement that I'm part of now, and like all these movements, I think this is what the nonviolent Jesus would be doing and what he is doing among us, marching on D.C. and Los Angeles, engaging in nonviolent civil disobedience for justice, disarmament, and creation. That's why I keep at this after about 85 arrests and being in and out of court all my life. That's what you get for following Jesus, I always say. It's part of the job description. Actually, I submit the only way positive social change comes about is through bottom-up people power grassroots movements of creative nonviolence, from Jesus to St. Francis and St. Clair to the abolitionists and the suffragists to Gandhi and Dr. King and the civil rights movement and the anti-Vietnam War movement, and then the environmental movement, and then the thousands of nonviolent movements since then. That's what I've learned after 40 years of work in various grassroots movements of nonviolence. That's why I continue to organize campaign nonviolence. That's the best hope for nonviolent social change. The thing is, we have more power than we realize, and we're learning that. Uh, with nonviolence, Dr. King said, there is power. 
The problem with the issues today, though, is that we have to go way beyond Gandhi and Dr. King and build a global grassroots bottom-up people power movement of nonviolence, the likes of which the world has never seen. That's why this is the most important work we can do, certainly the most meaningful. But what I want to propose today is that this is holy work, that this is part of the spiritual life, that this work is discipleship to the nonviolent Jesus. So that's my introduction. What I'd like to do now is read to you from Luke chapter 10, where Jesus gathers the 72 unnamed disciples, we don't know who they are, sends them out in pairs ahead of them to announce God's reign and heal the sick and expel the demons and invite everyone into his new life of peace. They become, if you will, missionaries of nonviolence, sent into the culture of violence on his campaign of nonviolence. And that's what I'm proposing we're called to do too. Okay, here goes. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others whom he sent ahead of him in pairs to every town and place he intended to visit. And he said to them, The harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. So ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for his harvest. Go on your way. Behold, I am sending you like lambs among wolves. Carry no money bag, no sack, no sandals, and greet no one along the way. Into whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this household. If a peaceful person lives there, you'll, your peace will rest on him or her. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in the same house and eat and drink what is offered to you, for the laborer deserves his payment. Do not move about from one house to another. Whatever town you enter and they welcome you, eat what is set before you, cure the sick, and say to them, the reign of God is at hand for you. Whatever town you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, the dust of your town that clings to our feet, even that we shake off against you. Yet know this, the reign of God is at hand. I tell you, it, it will be more tolerable for Sodom on that day than for that town. Well, the 72 returned rejoicing and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us because of your name. And Jesus said, I have observed Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Behold, I have given you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and on the, upon the full force of the enemy, and nothing will harm you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice because the, the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And at that very moment, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I give you praise, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for although you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, you have revealed them to the childlike. Yes, such has been your gracious will. Well, that's the reading from Luke 10. It's one of my favorites. And I'd just like to walk through this great story with you as an image of our work for justice and peace to encourage you to continue your own campaign nonviolence work. So if you if we look at it this way, Jesus sends 36 teams of nonviolence trainers into the war-torn countryside to invite people out of war, poverty, racism, and empire into the new life of loving nonviolence. They're organizers. Jesus is not just a community organizer or a movement build builder. He's a nonviolent general commanding a new nonviolent army. 
And instead of waging war, he wages peace. He sends them out to disarm everyone and dismantle and bring down the empire nonviolently and lead humanity into the peace of God's reign. He mobilizes, if you think about it that way, an astonishing campaign of active nonviolence, an authentic peace movement, but in the outskirts of a horrible, brutal empire. And he's going to continue all the way to Jerusalem and even after that. Again, just for the record, this is exactly what Mahatma Gandhi did when he organized, for example, the 1930 Salt March. He had 79 trained nonviolent resistors with him. And this is what Dr. King did as well in 1963 during his Birmingham campaign. And he trained, as you recall, thousands of high school and elementary students. Jesus is actually building his own Satyagraha campaign. That's why in recent years, as I've spoken around the world, I always say, Jesus thinks he's Gandhi. <laughs> Jesus thinks he's Dr. King. Okay, it takes a while for everyone to get the joke and start laughing. <laughs> okay, here's the start. Go on your way. No, that's the imperative tense. Get going, get moving, go forth and make peace. Jesus is always trying to get the movement moving. And then in Matthew, although we're studying Luke, Matthew, he says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. As part of his teaching on nonviolence, right? I love that because that means as nonviolent people, there are times we get to coo like a dove and other times we get to hiss like a serpent. That's what people of nonviolence do. They just don't hurt anybody. Uh, here in Luke, Jesus sends something even more shocking. You just heard me read it. Behold, I am sending you like lambs into the midst of wolves. Now let's just take a moment and sit with that image. Jesus is sending us into the world of war and violence and terrorism and, you know, the Roman Empire for them and the world of violence today as peaceful, gentle, unarmed, nonviolent people. And his image is that we are as vulnerable and harmless and innocent as a lamb. Now imagine a tiny little lamb. I don't know if you've ever seen one, but I lived in Ireland and saw a lot of them, and they're so helpless. Now imagine that lamb is surrounded by, let's say, 30 wolves. That's Jesus' description of the peacemaker. That's his image of nonviolence. It's shocking. Uh, that's what you can expect if you're going to go forth into the world of violence, walking the way of nonviolence. What's going to happen to the little lamb? What are the wolves thinking dinner time? The lamb is going to be eaten alive. And that's what happens to peace people, peacemakers, people of nonviolence. They don't give you the Nobel Peace Prize or tell you what a great job you're doing. You get harassed starting with those closest to you and your job and your community and your church. That's been my experience. Um, and I've met uh, many, many wonderful peacemakers, and I've been well-received here and there. But, you know, I, I take this text to heart and feel like uh, there have been many times when I've been surrounded by the pack of wolves showing their teeth ready to pounce, and sometimes they do. Um, you know, that's my experience after a lifetime of arrests and jailings and rejections and courtroom hearings and death threats and church condemnations and insults 
and hate mail and so forth. I could go on and on. And, um, but I, as I joked, I think that is part of the job description because that's what happened to Jesus. And he was a perfect, harmless, vulnerable lamb, but he was a total revolutionary at the same time. This is the life of nonviolence. The problem for me and most of us is that we forget our lamb nature and become wolves in order to transform the other wolves. Oh, I, they're all wolves, so I will be a wolf too. That's not the way of the gospel. It's not the way of the nonviolent Jesus, the good shepherd, the lamb of God. He is totally nonviolent, and he wants us to become totally nonviolent and says the only way the message of nonviolence can be spread in a campaign nonviolence is through total nonviolence, which means you have to claim your true nature as a son and daughter of the God of peace to be like a vulnerable, harmless lamb whose very presence will be disarming. You remember he said, it's a theme that runs in all the scriptures and the gospels. Beware of wolves and sheep clothing, he says elsewhere. And you think about that one. You know, we under, if we're going to undertake peacemaking in a culture of war, we want to make sure we are lambs in lambs clothing, not wolves in sheep's clothing, which means we've got to get rid of the violence within us. The roots of war and empire let, lurk within us. But really, we're all addicted to violence. So lately I've been thinking, well, maybe one way to do this is to befriend and disarm our inner wolf, if you will that we're constantly working on our own inner discernment to cultivate our true nonviolent nature and let that blossom so that we can get on with the mission that we've been given. The goal, remember, as Isaiah said, I wonder if we're, this is where Jesus gets all these images, is that the lion and the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Neither kills nor is killed. That's where we're headed. That's what God's reign of peace and nonviolence is going to look like. Here on earth. So then you get all these details of the mission, which once you begin to think about it, make perfect sense. Take nothing for the journey, no money, no sack, no sandals. Don't talk to anyone along the way. What the heck is that about? Well, we forget. This is like Syria or El Salvador in the 80s at the height of the death squads where I lived once, or South Africa under apartheid. He's sending his followers into the Galilean countryside where the Roman death squads are roaming around on the prowl to steal, rape, pillage, and kill. So if you think about it, what he's saying, it makes perfect sense. Jesus is organizing an underground movement to disarm and dismantle the empire. So he's very practical. Be careful. Don't go around. You know, if someone's nice to you, stay with them. And stay in the house and work with them. Be on the alert. And there's nothing idealistic or Pollyanna about this. This is very serious and practical. And I get it from having been in so many scary war zones. And their mission is very clear to proclaim peace, bring peace, make peace, and welcome God's peace. So you have language like this. When you enter a house, say, peace to this house. If a peaceful person lives there, your peace will rest on her. Eat and drink what they serve, don't move about, cure the sick, and announce that God's reign of peace is at hand. Say, the reign of God is at hand for you. And if they reject you, shake off the dust from that town, but say again, the reign of God is at hand for you. Um, every word we speak 
as missionaries of nonviolence is a word of peace. You know, we're always should be engaging in spiritual conversation, which has social, economic, and political implications for peace. We want to make people feel at peace, be a peaceful presence in their midst, affirm their peace, and lead people deeper into God's peace in their own lives, even in their own homes, until we spread this into a new culture of peace and nonviolence, which we still can't quite even imagine. Um, you know, I, I take this to hear him saying, just be calm and peaceful and nonviolence on this mission, and you will be a healing presence of peace, if you will. We're healing everybody who's been hurt by violence. And every human being's been hurt by violence. And we're expelling the demons of violence from everybody. What does that mean? We're all possessed. They were possessed by the Roman Empire thinking, well, it's not that bad. Yeah, that's what we do. And we are possessed by the American Empire saying, well, there's nothing you can really do. And um, that's the demons of apathy and complacency. And um, we're going to expel that. We're taking action and calling people to join the campaign. My friend and teacher Thich Nhat Hanh has been telling me this for decades, that if you, if you are really centered in peace, uh, you can have a much bigger impact. He calls it being like a rock of peace, a mountain of peace. And you attend to that always first and foremost, and then your very solidity uh, brings peace. And this is the gift that is needed today, first and foremost, because we're all being ground under by the American wheels of war and greed and racism, hatred and despair and nuclear weapons and environmental destruction. Worst of all, we Christians seem to be leading the way. We seem full of hate and hell-bent on the kind of antichrist mission of hatred and war and division and condemnation. We do not want to be wolves sent out by the Pentagon and the culture of war on their campaign of violence. You know, that's why I'm talking about this text, to help us to see what Jesus was about and to reclaim our mission of nonviolence into the world of violence. Um, it's a great way to look at life. And I think Jesus is looking for another 72 volunteers to sign up and go forth with this job. But, you know, this is just the first half. And what's so really shocking about the story, this is what gets me going, is that they seem to do the job. I mean, you know, the disciples, don't get me started. I always think of the male disciples as the Keystone Cops. Peter, James, and John are like the Three Stooges. Martha and Mary are totally clueless also. They're like Lucy and Ethel. I just said this yesterday at Mass while I was preaching. You know, um, they just do everything wrong. That's why I always focus, and, and, and in fact, that's a real gift that we have that in the gospel because we see ourselves in them. And Jesus is always right, and he's always kind and gentle. But here, the 72 come back apparently having fulfilled their mission. And not only that, we're told they return, quote, rejoicing. Who ever heard of anybody rejoicing, especially in the church? Okay, that's a little dark. Not only were they able to help others become more nonviolent and peaceful, they found the experience consoling and uh, joyful. They're filled with joy. The word joy is used five times in like two or three sentences. It's the only time in the four Gospels where it appears like that. 
And you see where I'm, maybe you see where I'm going with this. If we do this work of public peacemaking, if we dare take up the challenge to go on this campaign of nonviolence, we will rejoice. This brings joy. That is one of the great lessons I have learned throughout my life, personally, and from all the great peacemakers I've met, from Daniel Berrigan to Mother Teresa to Archbishop Tutu. They were people of great joy. Despite the rejection and the persecution and the trouble you can get in for working for peace and justice, there's a deep inner joy and spiritual consolation that I have not found anywhere else. And that's actually exactly what happened a couple of months ago with Jane Fonda and our friends in Washington, D.C. It's very hard to describe. There were 140 of us in handcuffs for like seven or eight hours in freezing cold weather in a kind of makeshift garage with the doors open, surrounded by cops with guns, and everybody was ecstatic. It was a spiritual experience. I'm just saying. But even more shocking is the text doesn't stop there. The disciples rejoiced, and then we're told one of the only times how Jesus felt. You really want to get to know Jesus, start reading the Gospels and going, what is he feeling? Not just what is he thinking, what's he going through? Because we're supposed to be his disciples. Jesus' reaction is even more amazing. The first thing he says was, I observed Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Dear friends, Satan is the biblical code word for empire. It's not 666 or this or that. They can't come right out and save the Roman Empire. But when you build a grassroots movement on the worst part of violence and oppression, when the people start rising up nonviolence, the empire is over. If you have eyes like Jesus, they'll put it another way. When Rosa Parks sat down and then refused to give up her seat, if you have eyes to see like Jesus, segregation fell already. Isn't that a great way to look at it? That's why we have to have hope about what we're doing. Jesus saw that. The peace movement work erodes the culture of war and greed and empire. Then and now. In the, in the anti-Vietnam War movement, they used to talk about kicking out the legs of the table of empire and the culture. His campaign of nonviolence right there in, in uh, Galilee is the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. And then we have this shocking statement, which is just like Martin Luther King. Behold, I have given you power. Power. That's Dr. King's definition of nonviolence. No, Jesus, we are powerless. There's nothing we can do. Well, then you're not taking him at his word. You're disobeying him. Worse, you think you know better than Jesus. And all I would say is I just wouldn't go there if I were you. Um, we have power. Martin claimed it. I want to do the same thing. Nothing will harm you. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. What a beautiful promise. I don't know what it means, but it's so beautiful and poetic and consoling and mysterious. This is all what Gandhi said, too. Gandhi loved this text. He said to the people of India, you have more power than you realize if you stand up together. There's 300 million of us. There's only 30 million British. But we're just going along doing what the 30 million say. If the 300 million stand up, 
The British will leave peacefully. We have power. And that's all we're trying to do. Let's claim our power and demand a new world without war, nuclear weapons, poverty, racism, environmental destruction. Um, that's why he defined nonviolence as a force more powerful than all the weapons of the world combined. If we can claim that power and practice it and live it and trust that our survival is already guaranteed, and that nothing will ever harm us, we will be rejoicing and getting on with the work. And um, all I can say is I've, I've been experimenting with this text for 40 years. As I wrote in my book, uh, Walking the Way, you know, okay, I'll go to the refugee camp in El Salvador where the bombs are falling around us and, and be a, an instrument of peace and see if nothing happens to me. And nothing happened to me. You know, I felt totally protected. I was full of joy. And a lot of, I was talking to everybody I met in El Salvador about nonviolence. And I've been doing that in war zones ever since. Here's the climax of the story, though. He's affirming the 72. You've got power. Your names are written in heaven. And then all of a sudden, it says, at that very moment, quote, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Dear friends, I think this is the only time in the four Gospels where Jesus is filled with joy. Let me repeat that. It's the only time in the four Gospels where Jesus is joyful, where he rejoices. Why? Because his followers did what he said when on the campaign of peace and nonviolence. And they came back figuring, hey, this works. And they started rejoicing, then he started rejoicing. So one way to understand our lives today is simply, as Christians, to carry on his campaign of nonviolence and try to make the poor guy rejoice. I'm serious. We don't want to make the poor guy sadder, which is pretty much what we're doing. We want to help Jesus feel joy. Well, that means we got to get on with the mission and then go back and report to him with hearts full of joy and let him rejoice with us. All those who love and care for Jesus should join this mission of peace and nonviolence to bring him ever greater joy. To put it really, the kindergarten level, we want to cheer the poor guy up. So here's my questions. Why do we hear so little about the Galilee 72? That's what I call them, like the Catonsville 9. You know, the Chicago 7, the Galilee 72. Have you thought about them that way? Who were they? What became of them? Why don't we honor and emulate them? Uh, okay, we can look at them, but do we want to fulfill that mission of peace? Do you want your name written in heaven? Do you want to make Jesus rejoice? Now, St. Francis took this passage really to heart, and he saw his life as a long peacemaking mission, and he sent his brothers and sisters out on that mission around the whole world, and he did a great job. And I think we need to experiment with this text, too, now as the world is on the brink of destruction, catastrophic climate change. So more questions. When you look on your life, I love to think about my life in terms of the mission of peace. When did I join this campaign of nonviolence? How has my life been part of Jesus's mission of peace? When did I fulfill it or have I fulfilled it? And today, in this terrible moment we're living through, how can I take up that mission of peace all over again?
How is Jesus sending me out today as a nonviolent peacemaking lamb into the midst of wolves to announce the good news of peace, help people practice nonviolence, to heal people, and to help people welcome God's reign of nonviolence? So my conclusion, we have been given great power if we dare claim it. No harm will come to you if you take up Jesus's mission. The old ways of empire are falling, even though the empire is saying otherwise. It's in its last gasp. Our names are being written in heaven. So rejoice and get moving. Thanks so much for listening. God bless you and peace be with you.